Hello, welcome to Lung Cancer Voices, a Lung Cancer Canada podcast. My name is Christina Sitt. You may recognize me if you listen to our What's New In webinar series. This special edition of Lung Cancer Voices has been adapted from the live webinar. If you like these webinars and the Lung Cancer Voices podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe. Thank you for your support. Hello. My name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to what's new in immuno-oncology. I believe this is the fifth one in our series this year, and we have a very exciting panel and lots of questions that have come in. So before I turn it over to our host and moderator, Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, just a couple of reminder notes. If you have questions, we will be holding them at the end, and please uh, write them or type them into the Q&A box, and we will um, hope to address them all. Um, please note that we cannot address individual medical questions related to your situation, and we really um, encourage you to talk to your physician about those questions. So now, without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to the President of Lung Cancer Canada and Medical Oncologist at uh, the Ottawa Hospital, Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price. Thank you, Christina, and welcome everybody to the fifth webinar in our series of What's New in Lung Cancer. And we've been really looking forward to this one with, with some uh, anticipation as immunotherapy is really uh, taken the field of lung cancer by storm, turned it on its head, uh, and, and really changed the lives of uh, you know, so many people. So we're really pleased that you can join us Please tell your uh, friends or family members about this. It will be available also on the lungcancercanada.ca website. And there you can also see previous iterations of this. So over the next hour or so, we are going to be having a discussion with Dr. Bremer and Dr. Jurgens. We'll spend about 45 minutes going through some pre-planned questions to, to discuss issues around immunotherapy. And then we'll have a Q&A uh, session at the end. So Dr. Julie Bramers is a, a professor of oncology at the Sydney Kimmel Can uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center uh, at the Johns Hopkins Hospitals System in Baltimore in Maryland. And Johns Hopkins you know, is obviously a global name in healthcare. And Dr. Bramer is one of the pivotal leaders of immunotherapy as we started to learn the positive results of immunotherapy uh, not that many years ago, just maybe five, five or six years ago. So it's really great that we're going to have Dr. Bramer's insight into this because she's really been there from the beginning of, of this journey. And Dr. Roz Jurgens is an associate professor at the Jurabinsky Cancer Center in Hamilton. Uh, she's the chair of the Medical Advisory Committee at Lung Cancer Canada and is one of Canada's immunotherapy experts. So before we get into questions, I, I just want to address one separate question that we've been receiving a lot about immunotherapy, but about lung cancer in general, and that's about the COVID vaccine. Uh, Dr. Bremer and Dr. Jurgens and I um, are in agreement with the advice that we want to give you in this, which is in line with Cancer Care Ontario, Health Canada, and different provincial agencies across the country. 
And the advice is, if you have lung cancer and you have access to a vaccine, please go and get it. If you are on immunotherapy, you can still go and get your vaccine. If you're receiving chemotherapy, you can still go and get the vaccine. The slight difference would be if you're receiving chemotherapy, we would advise you to try and time the vaccine within three or four days before a treatment. But the bottom line, if you have lung cancer and you are now offered uh, one of the COVID vaccines, any one of them, Moderna, Pfizer, or the AstraZeneca vaccine, we believe they are all safe in lung cancer patients and would strongly encourage you to get vaccinated. Right, that is my public health message about COVID. And now we're gonna get right into it. And I'm gonna come to you first, Dr. Jurgens. Could you just start us out by telling us what is immunotherapy and what are the common immunotherapy drugs? Absolutely. Thank you, Paul, for inviting us to do this today. I talk about immunotherapy a lot, um, not shockingly, because we use it quite frequently in our lung cancer patients. When I think about the balance between cancer and the immune system, I'm reminded of the fact that cancer cells remind me a lot of teenagers. There's lots of things that uh, teenagers are known for. So for example, we would prefer our teenagers not to be going places when they don't have permission. Just like cancer cells, we would prefer they not be going to the lungs or the liver or the bone or the brain. We would prefer they stay uh, right where they were supposed to be put. We would also prefer our teenagers not to be making copies of themselves, and cancer cells are notorious for making copies of themselves way too frequently. But one thing that's also true with teenagers is, is they're very good at getting themselves out of trouble. And one of the aspects of cancer cells is that they were normal cells once, and they have all of the same aspects of being a normal cell generally built into their, their DNA. And there's this concept called self-tolerance. And it's basically how our immune system knows to identify friend from foe. If we didn't have self-tolerance, we'd all be running around with autoimmune diseases like lupus and Crohn's disease or multiple sclerosis, et cetera. But we have a wonderful system of self-tolerance that's in place that helps the immune system identify friend from foe. The struggle with cancer cells is, is like I said, they were normal cells once. So they know how to identify themselves to the immune system. No different than a teenager who got in trouble for being out past curfew and knows to uh, tell the authorities to call their mom, call their lawyer, whatever it is might be. Um, there's an ability for the cancer cells to do what I call shake the hand of the immune system such that a cancer cell can stay under the radar such that the immune system thinks it's a normal part of self and, and does not target it as uh, one of the uh, what I call domestic terrorists of our body. The way that uh, the most common type of immune therapies work is, is they block the handshake. So that self-tolerance connection between the immune system and the cancer that is a handshake identifies identifying something as a friend is disrupted by these different medications. The most common medications in our immunotherapy arsenal are what we call PD-1 or PD-L1 inhibitors. And there are, I do believe now, six of them that are approved by Health Canada in various indications. So you may be familiar with a drug called pembrolizumab, nivolumab, atezolizumab, dervalumab, Avelumab and Semithlamab. These are approved by Health Canada in various indications and would be recommended by your medical oncologist if we were trying to do what I said, break, break that handshake. 
And, you know, it seems like a very simple concept. And I will tell you that there have been skeptics over the years until Dr. Bramer's first in-human clinical trial that proved the concept that you can disrupt that self-tolerance handshake and it can actually lead to cancer cells dying and patients living longer. And we now know better lives. So that's my, my two minute, uh, what is immunotherapy? Thank you. Thanks, Ros. I've not heard the handshake example before. I, I, I've sometimes used the example of the Lord of the Rings fans, that the magic ring that Bilbo wears to, or Frodo wears to make him invisible, that yeah. the cancer cells are sort of wearing the magic ring. And so the immune system can't get them. And then these drugs that you, you described, they take the ring off and suddenly Bilbo is, is, uh, is visible and the orcs can come and get him. And, and of course, it falls down because the orcs are bad and Bilbo's good and it should be the other way around. So I like your example. I, I, you. I use Star Wars analogies and you know what? You got to find the right person for these different things. <laughs> right. And Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. Anyway, yes. let's move on. Um, uh, so Dr. Bremer, so so Roz kind of uh, set this up for you that you you were involved in these early trials. So, so she's kind of set the scene of, of maybe you would want to add to what she said or maybe you could just tell us the story about when did immunotherapy start being useful in lung cancer and, and how did that come about? Sure. Uh, it's making me feel very old, but thank you very much for having me on today. I think the way I remember it, when we started work on these sort of therapies and bringing it from the lab into the clinic for the first time was when my daughter was born in 2009. So it's been a while. And in the initial first in human study, when typically these phase one, they're called phase one studies. And these are either bringing a drug into the clinic for the first time or combining it with another drug for the first time. And the goal really is to try to find the right dose. And typically we tell our patients that in these studies, it's at least in the past, it's been unlikely to expect a response. But early on, we started seeing patients with different types of diseases, uh, their diseases decreasing uh, on scans and patients feeling better on these on these drugs. Now, of course, it didn't happen to everyone. But when we saw initial um, activity in a patient with melanoma where immunotherapy was already known, uh, we got excited because it was uh, pretty uh, much easier to tolerate compared to some of the older immunotherapy drugs used in melanoma. And then we started seeing a response in a patient with colon cancer, and that started the information around what uh, microsatellite instability is or a high number of uh, gene mutations being associated with a response to immunotherapy in a patient's cancer. And then we also saw very initial exciting signals that a patient with lung cancer, their tumors decreased in size. And so... Um, that was very exciting to see, but actually the companies weren't that excited, or the company that we were working with at the time wasn't super excited about that. They were like, uh, it didn't last very long, so maybe we'll just uh, do large studies in mel patients with melanoma and kidney cancer, and maybe colon cancer. And we said, no, no, wait, wait, we've got, we need to test it in uh, patients, more patients with lung, lung cancer, and then that's uh, got the ball rolling. And then we know that it led into 2015 when uh, nivolumab was one of the first uh, drugs approved for use for patients with metastatic lung cancer. And really that was the start 
of other trials that then moved these type of drugs into the first-line treatment setting with pembrolizumab and other drugs that have come uh, thereafter, and then also moving it into early stage, uh, earlier stages of disease, which we'll get into, I think, next as well. So I apologize, Judith, if, I, if my question made you feel like you were older, but I think your answer, <laughs> you okay. found that you're not because, you know, my daughter was born at the same time and this has all happened in the last decade, essentially. Yeah. So th yeah. this has been rapidly moving. So can I just maybe ask you to just expand a little bit? You, you mentioned that, you know, initially you started to see benefit in these phase one first in human studies, which really are just figuring out dose and safety then you mentioned 2015 so what was it about the research and the studies that you were doing in 2015 that then we as a global community learned what was it about those that suddenly made this not an experiment and now but but something that we should be doing sure well the uh, phase one study then went into a phase two, well, uh, another study looking at uh, slightly different ways of giving uh, that sort of uh, drug and looking at larger groups of patients. And when we saw consistent signals um, and patients that their cancers decreased in size, and then that decrease in size seemed to last much longer than chemotherapy. And this was in a group of patients with lung cancer that the only option they had for treatment was chemotherapy at the time. And we know that chemotherapy does work in some patients and uh, this can help control the disease, but we never ha had really seen the response occur and then be this long lasting. That then led to what's called a phase three study where we had to compare against standard chemotherapy and in a group of patients, single agent uh, nivolumab compared to chemotherapy improved the group of patients uh, long-term what we call survival. These patients live much longer than uh, patients who are just on chemotherapy. And while chemotherapy helps, it didn't seem to help the group uh, as, uh, as much compared to those patients treated with immunotherapy. And I think that really uh, then changed uh, and allowed um, the regulatory agencies like in the US, the FDA to approve the drug since it was found to be safe um, and um, uh, performed better compared to chemotherapy in that group of patients. Okay. You know, Paul, what I think is also very exciting about this was, you know, obviously that changed the game for us um, when Checkmate 17, Checkmate 57, Keynote 10, those are the names of the, some of those big trials that were done. But just this year, as, as we've mentioned, these things came out in around 2015. Um, we are now getting five-year follow-up on multiple of these clinical trials. Um, and that's always the concern is, is what's the durability? Um, and if we look at the five-year results of both of these trials, there is still, I think it's somewhere in the range of 10, 12% of patients who are still alive with lung cancer beyond five years from uh, benefit from these therapies. And we would have never thought to have had that type of statistic in a stage four, second or third line patient population. So it's not just the response, it's the durability. Yeah, and I should just put that comment in context, Roz, for people listening is in historically, you know, and, you know, tragically, 
when we were meeting people with stage four lung cancer a few years ago, we would have had to tell them that on average, they might not see out a year or, or, or maybe a bit more. And, and now we can, we can say with, without bluff or false hope that, that actually there's real hope that people can now live for, for many years and, and we're, all, we're all seeing that. Julie, maybe I could come back to you then with, with, with the question, uh, should everybody be, we'll just stick at the moment with, with people with stage four or advanced lung cancer. We're gonna come on later in the discussion to people who've had maybe surgery or, or radiotherapy. But just for now, if we stick with people who have got stage four lung cancer, and we're gonna also restrict it to non-small cell lung cancer, we'll talk about small cell lung cancer, another subtype in a bit. Should everybody be getting immunotherapy um, on its own? Or should some people be getting it with chemotherapy? Or are there people who, who really shouldn't be getting immunotherapy at all, that it's, it's not the right option? Um, and, and how do you figure that out? Is there something about the biopsy or, or the person themselves? Yeah, there's a, there's a, there are a lot of things that go into that decision when we're talking with patients about what is best to start with from a treatment standpoint for patients with stage four uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And a lot starts with subtype, so histology, so looking at adenocarcinoma versus squamous, as well as then looking at, in some patients, looking at mutations. So patients with what we call driver mutations in their cancer, such as EGFR or ALK, these patients do better when they're treated with a specific pill rather than immunotherapy. And so Typically, when we see patients, at least when they're first diagnosed with these specific changes, we recommend that they start with the pills that are best uh, used to treat those subtype of diseases. Then what we also look at is something called PDL1. This is a protein that is expressed on the cancer cell surface that is used to kind of cloak itself from the um, from the immune system. And the higher the PDL1 level, the more likely drugs like pembrolizumab or semiplumab or uh, tezolizumab can work by itself. And so uh, we say right now, patients with high PDL1, 50% or greater, then we recommend that they can get immunotherapy by itself and have a good chance of re uh, tumors decreasing in size and long-term long benefit. Now, if patients have low PDL1 or zero, we typically recommend adding chemotherapy to that. And that increases the chance of immunotherapy working and also helps us get control of the cancer uh, much better compared to either one by itself. And so that's kind of how I look at things. Um, now, there are special subsets of patients where it's harder to give immunotherapy to. Uh, one is like if you have a, an organ transplant, such as kidney transplant, heart transplant, or lung transplant patients, then typically we don't recommend giving immunotherapy just because of the high risk of a rejection, but I think that is a very um, a specific conversation that we have with uh, patients. 
and then also patients with active autoimmune diseases. So these are diseases where you have to be on drugs to suppress your immune system, because otherwise uh, you have a lot of symptoms from those diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, Crohn's disease, which is a GI autoimmune disease. So it's much harder to give immunotherapy to those patients, but you can, it just has to be monitored very closely. And so that's a personal discussion with each patient. So in general, if, if the cancer does not have a driver mutation, we're going directly to immunotherapy for really the largest group of our patients uh, with non-small cell lung cancer. Ross, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's the highlights. You need to, to look at the patient that's sitting in front of you and decide, you know, risk benefits of, of how to move forward. Every once in a while, you get a patient who either has a high burden of disease or disease in a, in a tricky spot where even when they're PDL1 high, if I need to get a result, I might start them on triple therapy um, with chemotherapy and immunotherapy. There's now so also some data looking at combining uh, immunotherapies, especially in our PDL1 negative patient population. There's some interesting uh, data looking at chemotherapy plus double immunotherapy. That's something that we're still trying to figure out exactly where it should fit, but uh, is something that your doctor might discuss with you uh, as well. So lots of combinations and absolutely a discussion with your physician around eligibility. But in general, what I think you're both saying is if people have some of the subtypes like EGFR or ALK, the topics of some of these previous webinars, start with those drugs targeted for that. Generally, pills work very well. If you don't have one of those and you don't have this very particular contraindication like a heart transplant or Crohn's disease, then you're all recommending people to get immunotherapy. And if the PDL1 level is high, maybe immunotherapy on its own, and if it's lower in combination with chemotherapy, and both of those options are far better than what we've had in the past. So, so Roz, you, you chair the Medical Advisory Committee for Lung Cancer Canada in Canada, in Canada, that's why we call Lung Cancer Canada, and part of what you do and your committee is you advocate for access to these drugs in Canada, could you reassure people listening that we have this access? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at what the availability is for immunotherapy in Canada, in the frontline setting for stage four lung cancer, we have access to an immunotherapy called pembrolizumab that can be used by itself if your pdl one score is high, which means 50% or greater. If you're PDL1 low or negative, we have pembrolizumab with platinum doublet chemotherapy, and your doctor would recommend what recipe of chemotherapy is best based on what the, the pathologist says, uh, based on uh, the type of lung cancer you have, that squamous or adenocarcinoma. And don't worry if uh, you were diagnosed previously, let's say you're on chemotherapy, you were started on chemotherapy by your physician, there is an opportunity to get immunotherapy if the chemotherapy stops working um, in the second line setting. So after failure of a first treatment, and we have access to multiple agents there, uh, nivolumab, atezolizumab, and pembrolizumab in that space. So these are all provincially funded uh, medications 
medications that your doctor is able to prescribe. Yeah, great. Thank you. And for those who aren't aware of the regulatory system in Canada, it's quite complicated. Health Canada approves drugs that they're safe for the whole country, but then there's a regulatory process called a health technology assessment, which makes a recommendation to the provinces uh, as to whether it's a drug that should be used. And then each province would make the decision to add that drug to their formulary and have it available for you. And, and really the good news for immunotherapy is all provinces and territories in Canada uh, have access to these drugs. So we're, we're in a good place for that. And Paul, I wanted to speak, I, I saw someone had posed a very specific question in the question and answer around the ability to retreat someone uh, who has had immunotherapy previously. So the standard for immunotherapy, if we use it in the frontline setting, um, specifically pembrolizumab, um, is that we would treat someone for up to a total of two years. And if they reach that two year mark, we would normally stop the treatment. That's how the clinical trial was done. And then just observe the patient. And in the clinical trial, there was an option to be able to re-challenge if the patient's cancer started to grow after that, that break of the immunotherapy was taken off. And I, I want to bring it up that yes, that's an option. And we have now seen by looking at the patients who had that very specific indication on the clinical trials, that that can be a successful strategy to re-engineer a response by doing so. But part of the reason I want to say it is, is we at Lung Cancer Canada actually advocated for that access. It was not built into the provincial funding originally, and we fought for that for our patients. And now all the rest of the diseases are benefiting from that. So we appreciate uh, the, the patients who have helped us to advocate for these things. Thanks, Ross. Yeah, it's a great point. Um, and, and also, I, maybe just on that, you know, I in my practice, at least, and sometimes people get to the end of this two years of treatment and they're a bit nervous about stopping. And maybe I, I could reassure you that, and, and, and please, Julie or Roz, correct me if I go wrong here, but, but basically, if you finish that two years of treatment and, and the cancer is under control after two years, the likelihood is it's going to stay under control for maybe years to come without needing treatment. So it is, it is safe to stop after two years. Absolutely. Um, Exactly. Julie, I was going to say, Paul, one of the connections that Julie and I have is, is that we've shared a patient who was one of those very early patients who was treated with lung cancer. And this past Christmas, he had his 10 year anniversary, two years of treatment, no treatment for eight years since, and still remains in remission. And he doesn't have a normal CT scan. There's still things to be seen there. So there's definitely hope. Definitely. Yeah, a lot of hope. Yeah. I chatted with a guy this, uh, just this week who, who just had one year of, of treatment. Uh, with one of the other immunotherapy drugs called nivolumab. And this month is his four-year anniversary of not having had any treatment. And he's waiting for the lake in front of his home to melt so he can go swimming. Julie, I'm going to shift gears. We've been talking really about immunotherapy in stage four lung cancer. And unfortunately, still um, really in, in most places in Canada, there's no different to that. When people are diagnosed with non-small cell lung cancer, 50% of the time, approximately, it's stage four, which means it's, it's advanced, it's metastasized. And then we're talking really about control and obviously hope and lots of people having long-term control. But if we can use these immunotherapy drugs before the cancer spread, then we've got a chance to improve the, the likelihood of a cure. So maybe you could address that. With, um, should we start with stage three lung cancer? Maybe if you could explain what is stage three and where immunotherapy fits in. 
Sure. So for patients who are, who are diagnosed with stage three disease, this is a disease that's limited to the chest um, and just on one side of the lung and potentially uh, lymph nodes in the middle of the chest called the mediastinum are also involved. And so these are patients that where the cancer cannot be removed by surgery, but can be treated with chemotherapy and radiation together. And in the past, just that therapy uh, did improve and potentially cure patients, but certainly not in the magnitude that we wanted uh, and uh, really uh, hoped. And then now adding immunotherapy after chemotherapy and radiation therapy has improved and decreased the chance of cancer coming back or recurrence as well as thus far improve how well patients do long-term. Now we don't have five-year survival, but that's coming, uh, that data. And now dervalumab uh, is the drug that's approved for use to help increase the chance of patients uh, potentially being cured of their disease. And that's where we say um, you have no evidence of cancer and it doesn't come back at five years. So that data is uh, forthcoming, but now dervalumab is approved for use. So, and that's mainly for patients whose cancer shrink down or at least uh, stay stable on scans uh, with chemotherapy and radiation. And then we move on to that drug afterwards. So definitely changing, again, immunotherapy across the different continuum of different stages uh, of patients with uh, lung cancer. And stage three lung cancer in Canada, at least represents about a quarter of cases when newly diagnosed. And again, I can reassure people that this Devalumab, one of the other immunotherapy drugs, is available in all provinces and territories. It's a one-year course of treatment after the chemo radiation and really is improving improving outcomes really significantly, not, not just uh, on paper that, that academics can read about, but it's transforming, transforming lives. So Ros, maybe I'll come to you. So we've, we've covered 50% of stage four immunotherapy on its own or with chemo in most people has really established itself. In stage three, that's another 25% after chemotherapy and radiation can improve the chance of a cure. That leaves us still 25% of people diagnosed with lung cancer who fortunately are diagnosed at the earlier stages, stage one or two, where usually surgery is the treatment and sometimes a course of chemotherapy. What about immunotherapy for people who've had surgery for lung cancer? Any updates? That's a great question, Paul. So there have been uh, four international clinical trials that have been done in this space. So patients who have surgically removed lung cancers, they had to be a certain size to qualify to get into these trials. So usually the cut point is either uh, four centimeters of, of size of the actual cancer or patients who have uh, any involvement of lymph nodes would have been eligible to participate in these studies. Some of them were what we call placebo controlled. That means some of the patients actually got the immunotherapy and some of the patients got uh, sugar water or something like that. And some of them were, were just observation versus the, the medication. Um, and uh, actually Paul uh, is well aware that this is a very timely question uh, because we saw the first bit of data come out of uh, one of these four clinical trials um, with one of the drugs called atezolizumab from uh, something called the Empower 10 trial. 
and the Empower 10 trial, this is just a press release. So this isn't something where we've been able to see it presented at a scientific meeting. Uh, we haven't seen it uh, published yet, but the, the press release suggested that there was an improvement in the number of patients who did not have the cancer recur in the patients who received the atezolizumab uh, versus the patients uh, who uh, just uh, were observed. So that's exciting news because we've all been waiting to hear uh, what the results of these trials will be. We're still waiting to hear whether or not people live longer in general with this strategy, but this is the first hint of hope that that uh, uh, combination of techniques, a surgical technique followed by immune-based treatment may offer benefit. Now, the suggestion in the press release is, is that it may uh, be the highest level of benefit in the patients who have pdl one expression, and details are yet to be forthcoming on, on what the differences are in those groups. But a banner week this week to get to hear that maybe all stages of lung cancer could benefit from this strategy. Yeah, that was just March 23rd, and we are, what, the 26th? So just on Tuesday, we learned that after surgery, immunotherapy may well have a role. And, and like we said, we need to know the details and the extent, and it will have to go through the regulatory processes. So we're, we're not, I, I think, likely to be able to prescribe this immediately, but um, hopefully not that, not that far away. Uh, and it's been a really positive step. J Julie, um, any thoughts on, on the, this latest announcement? No, I think we're just seeing the power of the immune system and these sort of drugs really uh, changing the, continuing to change the face of the uh, this disease. I think this does bring up uh, issues that lung cancer, uh, we're moving into sh survivorship issues. And uh, along with longer and improved survival also d uh, does come up the potential for toxicity with these drugs. Uh, you know, while we, we do say that uh, the side effects are much less than what we uh, typically uh, expect with chemotherapy, there are some toxicities that can be around long term that we have to educate our patients as well as uh, fellow providers to help manage even long-term so that uh, quality of life can also be maintained along with uh, long-term survival and cure. So I, I was going to ask about side effects um, a bit later on, but seeing as you mentioned it there, could, could you maybe just give us sort of a Coles notes on what, you know, how common sure. are, how common are serious side effects? How common are mild side effects? What kind of things might people see? Yeah, so um, any side effect uh, can occur uh, about six out of 10 patients uh, when you're on uh, one immunotherapy drug. And then serious side effects are more like one out of 10 patients where we have to stop treatment and place patients on what's called steroids or drugs that can rein the immune system in. You know, when we're taking the brakes off the immune system here with these drugs, while we want the immune system to target the cancer, it can target any normal cell in your uh, body as well. And so any organ system can be affected. Uh, most commonly, uh, it is the thyroid, which is a gland uh, in your neck that makes a hormone called thyroid hormone. And it's easy to replace those hormones if the gland doesn't work anymore. But it can affect other organ systems as well. But 
less likely, but again, depending on the side effect depends on whether or not we need to stop treatment and then place patients on medications to rein that immune system back in. Thank you. And, I, and you know, just for context, isn't it, those serious side effect rates are less than we've been seeing with chemotherapy and- Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And again, typically these side effects don't last very long. Uh, you're on the uh, steroids for about a month or a month and a half as they are decreased. We're monitoring patients. And if their um, side effects don't flare again, we decide whether or not to start patients back or depending on the side, side effect, we may decide to just hold therapy for a period of time because even when we stop immunotherapy, that response in the cancer can be maintained while the immune side effect goes away. So it's something that we certainly look on a case-by-case basis, but again, we have to watch these sort of side effects even long-term. Thank you. I've got two more questions that I wanted to get to before we, we open it up to a Q&A, but I was just going to make one other comment because we've talked now about maybe using immunotherapy after surgery for those early stages of lung cancer. And it would be remiss of me in my Lung Cancer Canada role not to give a shout out for lung cancer screening at this point. So lung cancer screening with low dose CT scans, the goal of that is to identify 75% of people at stage one and two instead of 25%. And so lung cancer screening program has been announced now to start in British Columbia next year. That's the first province. Uh, If you're listening and you would like to help, please join us as we try and advocate for screening programs in all provinces and territories uh, across Canada. And then if you can imagine 75% of people or at least more than we have now being diagnosed at stage one or two, there's a higher cure rate there. And then maybe if we add immunotherapy, we could really see survival for lung cancer at unprecedented levels in, in just a few years. Right, that's my stump speech. I've got two more questions. Julie, I'm gonna come back to you. Dr. Bramer, you mentioned earlier the groups of people that you may not want to start with immunotherapy in if they have these, what we call driver mutations, EGFR, ALK, ROS1, and and a number of others that are coming. There may well be people who are listening to this who have those subtypes. Should they ever get immunotherapy? Does immunotherapy just not work? In, in these subtypes, or is it something that could still be used? Down the road? Uh, well, I think uh, as a single agent, you know, where we take uh, drugs just like um, pembrolizumab or um, nivolumab by themselves, the likelihood of the cancers uh, decreasing in size on these drugs after the pills specific for that change, it's very low, at best one out of 10. And so typically chemotherapy actually works better than those drugs by itself. There are studies where we're, uh, we combine immunotherapy plus chemotherapy plus another drug, so four drugs, at least in patients with uh, something called EGFR, mutated disease their disease can be controlled by the four drug regimen when we're bringing immunotherapy in with chemotherapy. But I think a lot more study has to be done. Typically, these tumors are known to be what's called cold. The immune system just does not seem to play a role, but we're trying to figure out how to change that in order to bring uh, some 
different types of combination immunotherapy that might help down the road. But we're not there yet to automatically go from uh, being on those pills and then directly to immunotherapy by itself. We would not typically recommend because there the risks probably outweigh any small benefit. And chemotherapy seems more effective. Yes. Like you said. Now, what about people sometimes ask, well, if I'm on a targeted therapy, one of the pills, what about adding immunotherapy and giving them together and our, all our newest tricks together? But that, my understanding is that's pretty dangerous thing to do. Typically right now, yes. Again, a lot of the drugs that uh, patients are on for these types of cancers can cause inflammation themselves. And then you add immunotherapy and that just fuels the fire. And you can have a lot of side effects when you combine them together. And again, folks are looking at, are there ways to safely do this? But this is not something you want to do at home yet. Dr. Braver, I want to put a pitch in for, for clinical trials here. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that we're studying EGFR uh, with immunotherapy and clinical trials. And I encourage any patient who has one of these driver mutations, it, it may well be that immunotherapy plus is a, is a good option. So if you are well enough and you've got access to a clinical trial, please talk to your oncologist uh, about access to clinical trials. Yeah. Great pitch, Roz, and, and Dr. Jurgens leads the clinical trials cancer research group at the Jurovinsky Cancer Center and, uh, you know, is speaking from a, a wealth of experience there. We've got just a, a, a couple of minutes left before I wanted to open this up. Um, but so, Roz, I just want to come back to you now because we've really been talking about non-small cell lung cancer because that's the most common type of lung cancer. 85% of lung cancers are in this category, and, and it's where you know, Dr. Bremer's early studies and, and, and onwards, have, we've really established immunotherapy. But there are other types of lung cancer, small cell lung cancer, more aggressive subtype, and mesothelioma, or the cancer of the lining of the lung. So could you just touch on whether immunotherapy has a place for those subtypes of lung cancer? Thanks, uh, Paul, for that question. It's really been a couple of years in coming with respect to data in this space. Maybe I'll talk about small cell first. In this last two years, there have been, I can think off of the top of my head, at least four different studies looking at immunotherapy plus chemotherapy, just like we looked at in lung cancer, except with the chemotherapy that's a recipe for small cell. And these trials all showed a small amount of benefit above and beyond the chemotherapy. So there's been some Health Canada approvals of these combinations. The first combination, uh, the, the benefit was not assessed as being uh, high enough to leap the bar for the financial burden of the medications. There's another trial that's just come through, similar idea, chemotherapy plus immunotherapy. Um, it is before our, our funding body right now to decide whether or not the health economics around this uh, agent uh, might meet the bar for its use in Canada. There were some other trials as well that give us a hint of benefit, but not maybe quite as large as what we saw in non-small cell lung cancer. So I think uh, at least in Canada, the jury's still out as to whether or not we should be using routinely immunotherapy plus chemotherapy in the frontline setting. Really the darling I think of uh, this year has been mesothelioma. Mm -hmm. Mesothelioma has not had a lot of options for treatment. Really we've had uh, 
a combination of uh, two chemotherapies uh, as our standard of care now for, for a decade. And there have been two different trials that have been presented in the last handful of weeks. One of them looked at a combination of two immunotherapy drugs, one of these PD-1 inhibitors, a drug called nivolumab, plus a second immunotherapy drug that works in what I call the priming phase of the immune system. It helps put more cells out that are, are hunting for, for targets uh, by the immune system. That second drug is a drug called ipilimumab. That combination showed benefits in the frontline space in mesothelioma. The highest amount of benefit was in a specific type of mesothelioma called biphasic or sarcomatoid. So I would encourage people to talk to your oncologist about that data. There was a second trial that came out in the patients who had failed previous chemotherapy. So that chemotherapy combination that we knew had stopped working and they were randomized to either immunotherapy uh, or standard of care chemotherapy. And in that circumstance, whether you had sarcomatoid or epithelioid uh, mesothelioma, there was benefits. So again, these things are truly hot off the press. So those things have yet to be put forth for regulatory evaluation. So we don't have uh, Health Canada or funding approval for these yet, but this is exciting stuff that will be coming to us hopefully soon and our works in progress for Lung Cancer Canada to advocate for uh, in the upcoming months. Thank you. Yeah, so mesothelioma is that type of cancer related usually to asbestos exposure. And even though that's not gone through the regulatory system, there, there is some, some places do have access to these drugs through, through some compassionate programs. I've started prescribing immunotherapy for mesothelioma and uh, starting to see some, some, some good results, although it's, it's very early. So those of you who have been on the webinars before will know that when Christina turns her camera on, that's the hook that I need to stop talking. And uh, I'll pass it over to you, Christina, to take us through some questions. Thank you to the panelists. And at this point, I'm going to take the uh, moderator panel back from Dr. Wheatley Price and ask him to sit on the panel in his position as president of Lung Cancer Canada and a very esteemed medical oncologist in his own right. And I will turn the first question over to Dr. Wheatley Price. And some of the questions have um, been coming in about uh, the predictability of uh, immuno-oncology. Is there a group of patients, for example, some people have been wondering about smokers or those with PDL1 that might respond better to immunology, immunotherapy versus others? Yeah, so I think I think Julie uh, addressed that a bit earlier. It's, it's that group where the PDL1 level is very high. And you know, I like analogies. Uh, I like to make mulled wine. Uh, I put an orange into my red wine with some cinnamon sticks and I'll stud the orange with cloves to you know, infuse the wine that's delicious, particularly in a cold winter. But imagine the orange is a cancer cell and the clove is this protein or that's, that's sitting on the surface of the cell and that's the PDL1. If you've got an orange which is stuffed full of cloves, lots of PDL1, it's much more likely to respond to immunotherapy. If it's only got a few cloves on your orange, then you're going to need the chemotherapy as well as the immunotherapy to give it a better chance of working. So your oncologist should guide you that, it, that the PDL1 level is in general the best guide. There are some situations though where PDL1 is not so helpful. So people, for example, who've never smoked cigarettes or people who have one of these other mutations like EGFR or ALK, the PDL1 doesn't seem to be as helpful. 
Dr. Jurgens, why does it seem that some of the smokers do respond better than if you were not smoking to immunology? It goes back to what Dr. Bramer was talking about earlier in those very first clinical trials uh, of immunotherapy. And there was that first colon cancer patient that benefited from treatment. And to be honest, that was sure gosh darn luck because most colon cancer patients don't benefit from this treatment at all. But it was that very specific subgroup that has problems repairing its DNA. And so they, they accumulate these things called mutations. And the more mutations you have, the more likely you're going to get something called a, a, a neoantigen. It's a, it's a mutation that makes something that looks so different from self that it, it makes the cells stick out from uh, the rest of the cells. So if you think of it like buying lottery tickets, right? If I only have a small number of mutations, I only buy one or two lottery tickets, the likelihood that they distinguish themselves from the rest of the lottery tickets is very low. Whereas if I buy a thousand lottery tickets or a hundred thousand lottery tickets, there's a better chance that I'm going to have that winning one that the immune system picks as something that it can see and can target. So that's part of the rationale that we think underplays why smokers, we know that people who have smoking derived lung cancers seem to have more mutations and that may partly speak to why those folks are more likely to benefit from an immune based strategy but that still is an oversimplification. There's lots of things that go into this. It's not a one plus one equals two scenario. And that's why you really need to look to your oncologist for guidance. So Dr. Bramer, you talked a little bit about um, when you stop immunotherapy, then your immune system may continue to, to work on your behalf. And um, some of our patients were wondering and had, do have some anxiety about what happens when they stop and if, if their cancer will come back. Right. Well, we know that even if you stop the treatment, the control can remain for a long period of time. And for some patients, we don't, uh, we haven't seen any change in that even years down the road. I think it's something to be aware that even when we stop treatment, you do have to be uh, aware that side effects can occur even when you stop treatment. So always to be uh, aware of that. But also be assured that even when we stop treatment, again, your immune system or the effects on the immune system can be long lasting. And we think potentially even lifelong. Perfect. And some of our um, viewers here today are cancer looking towards survivorship. And they're just wondering, what is the chance of of immuno-oncology and what, in your experience to all the panelists, have you seen where immunotherapy has taken, um, led to no evidence of disease? So I, I think we definitely see what we call complete responses, um, but usually uh, we always see some sort of scar left behind and it's very hard to tell, you know, what is that on that scan? And so the main thing is for follow-up, making sure that you maintain follow-up with your oncologist and keep a good eye on things, as well as looking, uh, keeping up on your cancer screening for other cancers as well uh, down the road. So Dr. Wheatley Price and Dr. Jurgens, uh, what out of what you see in terms of uh, trials, what is the most exciting one that you feel is that may, might be coming? Oh. Dr. Jurgens, I'll pass that to you. You you run your whole clinical trials program. <laughs> well, it's a tricky question, right? The thing that I think is most exciting about what we have in front of us is the ongoing ability of our 
uh, personalization scheme. And I, I hope people take that away from today's conversation is every single decision is, uh, is a patient-centered decision. And we use pathologic information, we use this mutation information from the patient's uh, cancer's genes. We look at the patient's medical history. We look at how well the patient is doing and we add all that together to decide what the best treatment is for folks. And so I'm really excited at the fact that the trials continue to be ones that are personalized in such that we're trying to get the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that in oncology right now where there are biomarkers selected to be able to enrich the likelihood of benefit. Maybe I could give my thoughts on that too. You know, at the beginning, Roz gave that really nice example of how immunotherapy works with this, like this, this friendly handshake between the cancer and the immune system that has to be broken to turn the cancer cell from foe, from friend to foe. And I had an example of, of uh, taking off Bilbo's magic ring or Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. So the cancer cells can now be seen um, by the immune system. And, and I think the reality is that there are, there are multiple of these of what we call checkpoints in play that stop the immune system from attacking the cancer cell. And PDL1 is the one that we've been primarily talking about. But there are others of these checkpoints. And so there's a number of studies now that are looking at combinations of immunotherapy drugs that, that maybe one breaks the handshake and the other one takes off the ring and the other one takes off the invisibility cloak or, or the Star Wars analogy that we never properly heard. And so this this combination immunotherapy approach is starting to show uh, some promise and there's a lot of trials going on in that area. So we have um, about four minutes left. So I'm going to um, direct one more question to each of the panelists and then we'll go into something like I, what I call a rapid closer. So Dr. Bramer, there's been some questions about um, another type of um, immune response that's actually been in the um, the news quite often is, is vaccines and it's like, and could you comment a little bit about um, cancer vaccines as it relates to the immune system? So cancer vaccines thus far have uh, not proven a huge benefit in patients with lung cancer. However, some of that um, has to deal with trying to personalize that vaccine for each patient. So there are vaccines that are being studied to target a specific protein that is seen across different cancers. And then there are vaccines that are actually personalized for each individual patient. But those are all in very early stages of testing. Uh, some of the older studies that have done that have not yet by themselves been able to show benefit, but we think potentially combining that with some of these drugs called checkpoint inhibitors like um, pembrolizumab might actually uh, improve the chance of these drugs working better together. Perfect. And Dr. Jurgens, there's, uh, we're, we were talking about the place of immunotherapy in early stage lung cancer and late stage lung cancer, but what happens to a patient if they've received immunotherapy for early stage lung cancer and then they progress and are in late stage lung cancer? Oh, million dollar question. 
we again have to make these decisions individually, right? Um, and part of it uh, would be focused around when did the recurrence happen? Um, so for example, this happened to me this week in uh, clinic where I had a patient who had stage three lung cancer. They were currently on immunotherapy post the chemotherapy and radiation. And unfortunately we identified that cancer was in his bones. So that patient, despite the fact that his PDL1 status was high, greater than 50%, I'm, I'm likely not going to, to use immunotherapy uh, as my single strategy for the next step. So for example, if someone had a resection and had immunotherapy, so surgery to remove the cancer and then say got a year of immunotherapy after that and then they had the cancer come back two years later, I consider that fresh start and uh, we really follow the guidance at that point because we, we don't know at that juncture whether or not there would be benefit. That might be a great circumstance to advocate for a biopsy and get a fresh look at what's going on in the tumor and would be a very reasonable space to get a biopsy that might help us again uh, inform and personalize one thing we can't forget is his progress continues. And um, I saw another patient in clinic on Wednesday who was diagnosed in 2017 coming to me for a clinical trial and a whole bunch of tests that I would have ordered today, we didn't have in 2017. So I sort of had to reinvent the wheel and reorder all of those tests so that I could make sure that I gave him the best option. So individuals, uh, decisions, Christina. And Dr. Whaley-Price, we've spent a lot of time talking about um, combination therapy, all the hope and all the possibilities that might be occurring in uh, immunotherapy. But uh, for Canada, we have a publicly based healthcare system and coverage has always been a challenge for us. So could you talk a little bit about what we, we might do with this to be able to afford the best sort of treatment for Canadians and what changes we might need to make to our healthcare coverage? like a softball question for me, Christina, because you know I'm interested in this topic. And, <laughs> and at Lung Cancer Canada, we really have been striving um, for years uh, and we will continue to, uh, to push for the earliest possible and best access to effective treatments for lung cancer patients, whether that's lung cancer screening, whether that's immunotherapy, these new targeted therapies, radiotherapy techniques, some of the new testing that Dr. Jurgens has just uh, mentioned that she's just ordered uh, this, this week. And I think maybe I would just close my comments, uh, Christina, by asking a question to you as the audience, would you help us? And what we learned from the regulators uh, and from governments is that they'll listen to us, but they'll really listen to you as patients. And so, we would, we would welcome your assistance um, and we will coordinate things and put it all together. But the patient voice and the clinician voice is the way that we can really give ourselves the best chance of getting access to, uh, to all the treatments that we want in the most timely manner and in an affordable way. 
and um, we have some upcoming PCODER submissions coming up. So when you, we all gather the voices of the patients together into this one submission that we make for Lung Cancer Canada, then it really does add power to it. So it is at the two o'clock hour, and I think um, a lot of people were doing this over lunch because all the analogies about food sparked many comments about yummy. Um, but just to close, I'm going to ask each of you this one question. And if you were to complete this sentence, and I'll start with uh, Dr. Jurgens. Um, in the next 10 years, I can see immuno-oncology. How would you complete that sentence? Taking over lung cancer management, something available to every stage. Um, that's my hope. And Dr. Bramer? I think I would say immunotherapy will be personalized for each uh, patient over the next 10 years. And finally, our president, Dr. Wheatley-Price. I think in the next 10 years, immunotherapy is going to lead to thousands of Canadians with lung cancer living longer and better. So on that wonderful hope note, I am going to thank all of our panelists here today and really thank our audience for giving us the privilege to speak with you. If you, any of you missed this webinar or if you want to relook at it again and revisit it, it will be posted on our website and it will be turned on into a podcast as well. So thank you everyone and have a wonderful day and stay safe. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at LungCancerCanada.ca.